In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. When I hear a chancellor referring to investment income as unearned income, which is a straightforward Labour Party expression, it worries me considerably. Welcome to Chopper's Politics. I'm Christopher Hope, the Associate Editor for Politics at The Telegraph. And, well, what a difference seven weeks makes. But I'm not going to cut the additional rate of tax today, Mr Speaker. I'm going to abolish it altogether. From April the 23rd, we will have a a single higher rate of income tax of 40%. I start with personal taxes. Asking more from those who have more means that the first difficult decision I take on tax is to reduce the threshold at which the 45p rate becomes payable from £150,000 to £125,140. That was, of course, Kwasi Kwarteng, the former Conservative Chancellor of the Exchequer, announcing the abolition of the 45p tax rate on September the 23rd. Following that, Jeremy Hunt, his successor as Chancellor of the Exchequer, And I was lucky enough to be ringside in the Parliamentary Press Gallery when Jeremy Hunt was making just that announcement. And the silence from Tory MPs was really their appalled response at the tax hikes. Later I'll be talking to David Jones, the former Brexit minister and a senior player in the European Research Group of Tory MPs about how it's gone down amongst the right in the Parliamentary Party. And after that, Jim O'Neill, Lord O'Neill, about how the city is taking it. But first up, to work out what's been announced, look at the small print, I've got Camilla Tomney and Gordon Rayner, two of our brilliant senior team of reporters here at The Telegraph, with me now in our studio at Telegraph Towers. Gordon Rayner and Camilla Tomney, our associate editors here at The Telegraph, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you both on. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Gordon, it's been a busy day yet again in the world of politics. Just seven weeks ago, we were sitting here discussing quasi Kwarteng's many budgets, and now, well, that went one way, and this one's yeah. way has gone the other. What's the big theme from this, this uh, mini-budget? Bad news, I think, is the main theme. It's bad news for everybody. Uh, the, the Office for Budget Responsibility says that 55% of uh, people are going to be worse off, and uh, there's not really much... Well, there's no good news in it, is there? Let's let's be honest. Uh, we're talking about highest tax burden since the Second World War. Uh, we're talking about growth being more or less zero. Uh, and we're talking about real-term wages um, still being below 2019 levels by 2027. So basically a lost decade of, uh, of wage growth. So not, not a very jolly uh, budget. 
Camilla Tomney, isn't isn't the price we're paying for that splurge of money on the COVID crisis and then the energy shock from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the price for that is this extraordinary amount of money they're raising from people? Well, maybe, although I think people will find it oxymoronic that a budget designed to fill a black hole left by COVID is going to involve more government spending. I mean, this is a tax and spend budget. Uh, It may have well have been presented by the Labour Party. Politically, it's no wonder Tory backbenchers are currently tearing their hair out, along with, I would imagine, large swathes of the electorate. And I don't just mean Tories. While we can all appreciate the need to protect the most vulnerable by linking benefits to inflation and indeed keeping the pensions triple lock, many people will be asking, what on earth is the point of me working if the government is taking ever greater sums of my wages? And to explain that, Gordon Rayner, how, how, how has uh, uh, Jeremy Hunt raised um, the best part of nearly £30 billion pounds here from taxpayers? Well, uh, so to to rattle through them very quickly, uh, we've got the threshold for the top rate of income tax coming down from 150 to 125,000, which means that about 240,000 more people are going to be paying the top rate of 45p tax. He has frozen the income tax personal allowance and the higher rate threshold, the main national insurance threshold and the inheritance tax threshold, which means that until 2028, which means that obviously as people earn more, if anybody is going to earn money more, more people are dragged into those higher bands, people end up paying more tax on, on their income. He has cut the tax-free allowances on dividends and capital gains tax, uh, which, as you were uh, discussing before we came on, um, he described as unearned income, which um, may not go down very well with a lot of people. So the dividend allowance has gone down from 2000 to 1000 next year, then down to £500, probably down to zero eventually. Uh, windfall taxes going up on energy, car tax on electric vehicles, and the employer's national insurance threshold frozen. This is an assault on Middle England, Camilla Tomney. It's an assault on anyone who works or employs anybody. Um, And that's disastrous for the Conservatives, the so-called party of business, aspiration and entrepreneurialism, actually turning over their support base um, in this extraordinary manner. Oh, and by the way, to add insult to injury, doing it in the name of Nigel Lawson. Uh, Sorry. So Jeremy Hunt um, mentions the former Chancellor, talks about his big boom of the uh, 1980s, seemingly forgetting that it was Nigel Lawson who reduced tax in every budget he delivered. Gordon, what was shocking to hear you say there was that the thresholds are frozen until 2028, the best part of the next election. So will the Tory party fight the next election based on freezing thresholds and punishing voters who may want to vote for them to, to cut taxes? Well, um, I think there's there's a, some sort of quite uh, there's some sleight of hand going on here, isn't there? So he's delaying some of the worst news, which means that for a start, uh, he's hoping that the Tories will go into the next election not having given people quite as bad news as they could have done. But also, he's sort of left a little time bomb in there for for Labour should they win the next election, rather like Gordon Brown did with um, putting up the top rate of tax to 50p days before the election in in 2020. It's it's such bad politics though, isn't it? I mean, you go into the next election and you're a voter and you think to yourself, okay, if we go with the Conservatives, we're going to be taxed more. Oh, and then they're going to cut spending as well because he's put it off to 2025. So it's a double whammy of reasons not to vote Conservative. One wonders whether there are any reasons at all to vote for the Conservatives right now. Gordon, why would you vote Conservative? Well, I think the point that Camilla's making, and it's a a very fair one, is that... um, the problem the Tories have got now is that they've removed any peril for voters in voting Labour um, because voters will go to the, to, the, to the polls in two years' time unless there's some huge change we haven't foreseen and they'll be thinking, well, what's the danger of voting Labour? There isn't really one because they're not going to put my taxes up any more than the Tories have already done. So th- that's the Tories' main attack line already gone. 
Um, so, you know, we're already in an electoral cycle where the Tories will have been in for 14 years. So people will think it's time to give somebody else a turn. And they certainly won't be afraid of voting Labour because there isn't anything to be scared of. And if there isn't any growth, then it's all been for nothing. People have been basically screwed over for nothing. That's the tax side of it, Gordon. The spending side was quite big too, wasn't it? Yes. So rather than cutting public spending, he said that uh, public spending will rise by 1% a year in real terms for the next three years. The NHS is getting another $3.3 billion in both of the next two years. He's put another $2.8 billion into social care next year and $4.7 billion into social care the following year. And schools are getting an extra $2.3 billion for the next uh, two years. Uh, we already, we've talked about pension and, and benefits going up by uh, inflation. National living wage going up to £10.42. I think that's the biggest rise on record. Defence spending staying at at least 2% of GDP. International aid targets staying at 0.5% for the moment. And no cuts to HS2 or Northern Powerhouse Rail. Now, come to one of the biggest cheers I, I, when I was in, at the, um, in the press gallery were for the spending on schools and for the guarantee on the triple lock pension. That yes. was, that was I mean, about it. Otherwise, the MP looked like they were the one to vomit most of the time. Well, indeed. I mean, look, school spending has not gone up enough, not least in comparison to NHS spending. Somebody said on Twitter, we are now... Um, the NHS with a government attached. And there's a good argument for that. I think Tory MPs will be saying, you're putting ever more money in and you're not talking about any reform. We keep on doing this. On we keep NHS, on, you mean? Yeah, we keep on spending the money on doctors and nurses and yet people have got ever longer waiting times and fewer operations. So that doesn't make any political sense. Of course, we want more spending on schools and I think that was an appropriate response to deep concerns about the effect of coronavirus on a generation. Um, with regard to this um, pride in doubling um, capital expenditure on projects like HS2. The trouble is the government doesn't seem to be able to administrate these huge projects. They keep on going over budget and they're wildly unpopular with the electorate. So again, is that actually anything to be proud of? This notion of Hunt saying, oh, well, capital projects under us have doubled since Labour. Yeah, but none of them are any good or wanted. One of the big mistakes of the um, of the coalition, the Lib Dems always said, Gordon Rayner, was that they cut capital spending. Mm. And that appears to be what's not, not happening in, in the short term, at least. No, um, and I just wanted to pick up on a point there also um, that Camilla mentioned about health reform. Um, the the OBR is saying that 1.1 million more people will be on health or disability benefits than there were in March, which is going to cost an extra £7.5 billion. 1.1 million more people getting those benefits. And that's partly because the policies over COVID and the and the, the mess over the NHS means that people are not getting the operations they need, as we know. Um, we need, you know, you could do a 10 podcasts on NHS reform, frankly. This is the elef- other elephant in the room, by the way, that never gets mentioned and doesn't seem to be being discussed. This 23% increase in working age benefit take. What's that about? Right, so that's basically saying that one in five of the working age population of this country are claiming benefits. It's not being talked about. It's as if it's completely fine to let this happen. And again, surely that should be an absolutely totemic subject for the Tories to tackle. He did speak a little bit about it. He did talk about encouraging more people on universal credit um, into taking on more work and talked about them having meetings with people. But again, it all seemed to me a bit jammed tomorrow. Let's talk as well about the, the nuclear announcement. I mean, that is a decade too late. How long is it going to take to get... That's size we'll see, I think. Yeah, it's up and running. When we're facing crisis now, also, by the way, on energy, nothing on gas, mm. which is the main problem for, for our energy bills anyway. 
he said that didn't he, Gordon Rayner? Not not least the, the the benefit side of it, but he said there had been a sharp increase in economically inactive working age adults of six hundred thirty three thousand. I mean, yep. are these young people? Are they, well, a lot of them are, are people who've taken early retirement um, okay. after COVID, and I think that was something the government didn't really foresee. We've got these this huge number of vacancies in the jobs market. Clearly, part of that is um, because there's you know a lot of people have gone. Uh, you know, after after Brexit, people have gone back to the EU. They haven't been replaced. We, the government needs to decide what it wants to do about that in terms of its migration policy. But yeah, as Camilla said, you've got twenty twenty three percent of people claiming benefits, and yet you've got lots and lots of vacancies in the jobs market. So the two things don't really because the point, it didn't the point work, of Brexit was to stop bringing cheap labour from the European yeah. Union and to make Brits work harder, get paid more. That was the point of Brexit, wasn't it, Camilla? Yeah. Yes, but then, I mean, uh, Brexit was mentioned, what, once in an hour-long autumn statement, um, talking now about trying to make the most of some of the regulatory reforms that, frankly, had been presented to Boris Johnson. Mm. What was it? The Tigger report, which Ian Duncan Smith yes. and others wrote, had been on his desk. It must have been on the desk of Downing Street now for two to three years. He mentioned Brexit red tape, didn't he, I think, Gordon? He said he was going to use Brexit freedoms to make Britain the world's next Silicon Valley. Oh, look at that. There's a phrase that you've never heard before. <laughs> We've well, we got uh, the Silicon Roundabout, haven't we, in East London? Now, yeah. I've the, now I've got the valley. Exactly. So he's, interestingly, the one thing that I thought was quite interesting was he's talking about putting um, Sir Patrick Valance in charge of looking at how we can use changes to EU regulations in five particular areas to help to boost business. Obviously, Patrick Valance, a uh, bit of a hero after, uh, after COVID, the chief um, scientific officer. He's talking about removing import tariffs on more than 100 goods. He's also keeping the research and development um, spending at the same level. He says it's going to hit 20 billion by 2024-25. So that's, you know, a a little positive glimmer in amongst the Isn't there an irony there, Gordon? I mean, uh, Sir Patrick Valance, one of the men that was instrumental in locking this country down for months on end and insisting that schools were closed, and now we've got a budget that's trying to make up for those... yes quite disastrous I'm trying mistakes. to find something positive to say, Camilla. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what, what, what wasn't in there? I was surprised there was no crackdown on the non-DOMs. Now, yeah. Akshata Murthy, Mrs Sunak, is a non-DOM, but she pays voluntary UK tax on her worldwide earnings. I mean, Labour can't believe their luck, can they? Yeah, nothing on non-DOMs, nothing on the online sales tax, which has been talked about and yes. talked about. Nothing on the social care lifetime cap other than it's, you know, it's been booted further into the long grass. Um, and obviously, we've, we've already said not very really much on public sector reform on the I mean, detail. Online sales, you're quite right, Gordon, although there was something about business rates. You know, you're going to get SMEs, which make up, by the way, 99% of the private sector, saying, hang on a minute, so let me just get this straight. You're going to shave 6% off our already fragile profit margins by putting corporation tax up. You're going to make it more difficult for us as sole traders. The IR35 stuff's been scrapped. You've now got this whole dividends thing that apparently these aren't earnings. Of course, they're earnings if people are working as contractors. Unearned income. Unearned income. I mean, what an insult to people who run their own businesses. Um, And then you've got this situation where the Amazons of this world just continue to make hay while the sun doesn't shine. Let's step back. We're going into another weekend of probably some conservative concern, isn't it, Gordon Rayner? How will this go down? And will bits of this be reversed? Are we are we in 2014? Are we to, or 2012 when it was? What we're we talking about the pasty tax and the caravan tax and others being reversed, or will this all get through? Well, we know that that some Tories, including ironically um, Esther McVeigh, who was going to be who was Jeremy Hunt's running mate when he ran uh, for leader, or you know, not well, not that long ago, um, is talking about um, rebelling. Uh, I think some Tory MPs will rebel, but I suspect not enough. 
I don't see how Labour are going to oppose much of this. My hunch is that we're not going to see a massive unravelling of this. But, you know, rather like the pasty tax, very often it takes a couple of days for some of the details to really sink in and for people to spot the small print uh, and for these things to um, go go wrong. Yeah, Camilla? Labour can't oppose it, can they? I mean, they support most of the policies. It's a brown eye offering. That's why Rachel Reeve could only really go for the juggler when it comes to keep on saying to the Tories, you've had 12 years in power and this is what you're left with. Um, I don't think um, Esther, um, much as I admire and like her, um, has got a huge caucus of sort of fellow rebels around her. And equally, of course, you know, with three prime ministers in as many years, I don't think the Tories can really afford to show a lack of unity on this. That's probably why Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak have served them up something they hate, because they know they've just got to swallow it down. On that note, Gordon Rayner and Camilla Tomley, thank you both for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Gordon Rayner and Camilla Tomley there. Now, after the break, I'm talking to David Jones, MP, the former Brexit minister, a senior player in the ERG, about how on earth these tax-raising measures have gone down amongst colleagues on the right of the Tory party. And my guess is he won't be happy. Right after this. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this and click follow so you don't miss an update. Now, being a journalist of The Telegraph covering politics, I am lucky enough to have a seat in the press gallery of the House of Commons and I could see what Labour MPs could see and perhaps Jeremy Hunt couldn't see which was the serried ranks of appalled Tories listening to this litany of tax hikes. One of those faces was David Jones MP, a former Brexit minister and a senior player in the ERG, the European Research Group of Tory MPs. He's closely attuned with what the right thinks and, well, he wasn't happy. David Jones, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. It's great to be here. We're talking remotely, of course, because it's the day of the autumn statement and you're dashing off back to your North Walian constituency. What did you make of the autumn statement? Well, it was trailed as being a tax-raising budget and, you know, it didn't disappoint. Uh, it's a significantly tax-raising budget. It's a budget that raises taxes, at least so far as personal taxes are concerned, largely by fiscal drag. It makes sure that allowances are, are fewer, that they're lower and that they're frozen for quite a long time. Take, for example, uh, the allowances uh, on income tax. Those are now going to be frozen until 2028 another two years beyond uh, the freeze that uh, Rishi Sunak imposed. So that will take an awful lot more people both into tax payments uh, status in the first place and also potentially into higher rates of tax at a later stage. And, you know, as a Conservative, it's something that does worry me. 
We'll come on to your worry in a minute. Do you think he means it? Because, of course, 2028 in modern day politics is literally a generation away or something like that, isn't it? Because it comes after the expected election in 2024. That's almost taking you to the end of the next parliament. Do you think he's doing that to reassure the markets, but he knows in his heart of hearts that surely he can't freeze thresholds that long if the Tories win the next election? Well, it could be. And of course, there's a further point there. You say if the Tories win the next election, I would have thought that the prospects of Tories winning the next election, if these high taxes continue, and if we promise that they will continue, are going to become more remote. So I would very much hope that uh, the Chancellor's gambit is exactly what you're outlining, and that at a later date, he intends to come back and indicate that he's going to be reducing those tax levels. But will there be time? Because lots of Conservatives like yourself will be very unhappy about this. It struck me uh, it was a kind of a social democratic announcement, something of which New Labour might have been proud of, particularly with the, with the way they've disguised the tax increases by freezing thresholds. Well, I, th- I think that that's a fair comment. And in fact, there was quite a lot of new Labour language used today. I mean, for example, he referred to reforming allowances on unearned income. A Conservative might say that uh, he was reducing allowances on investment income. Uh, and that's the difference. Unearned income is an expression that I haven't heard used for many years. And when it was last used, it was used by Labour chancellors. Uh, and that is one aspect also that does worry me. He has, uh, I'm glad to say, actually extended the triple lock and promised that it will continue. And that's good because a lot of pensioners depend on that. A lot of pensioners, however, also uh, depend on uh, dividends from small investments in companies. And he's going to be reducing the uh, tax-free allowance from £2,000 to £500 in April 2024. And that will come as a bit of a blow to people who have augmented their pension income by small investments in companies and uh, and unit trusts. And add to that, he's halving the tax-free threshold on capital gains tax too. Uh, yeah, yes, that's right. And of course, that has a double effect. It does penalise those who've invested in, in small assets. It's going to be reduced from 12,300 to £3,000 in April 2024. So it, it, it will hit them. But of course, what it might also do is to slow up the market, because uh, rather than disposing of assets and paying a higher rate of tax, people might, might tend to hang on to them. And that, that's a worry too. Will there be a backlash, do you think, from your colleagues on the backbenches? Esther McVeigh, who don't forget was going to be Jeremy Hunt's deputy if he became leader when he stood in July this year, she said she voted against any tax increases unless they got rid of HS2. Well, HS2 is staying. HS2 is chugging along all the way to Manchester, so we hear. And £100 billion worth of taxpayers' money. A, a lot of people are extremely concerned about that. I was initially, I have to say, a supporter of HS2, but as it's gone on and the, the cost of it has become so eye-watering, I think it's hard to regard it as anything other than a white elephant, and I would have been pleased uh, if the uh, Chancellor had said it was stopping at Birmingham. What's the impact here, do you think, on, on Tory MPs who, got a, who have to vote for some of these changes when bits of it are presented in, in a finance bill in the coming weeks? Well, I think a lot of people will be thinking very carefully about this. And I think that a lot of my colleagues are going to have discussions with their whips. I've indicated to you the aspects or some of the aspects that worry me about this, the assault upon uh, incomes, the assault upon savers. And there will be a lot of other things that will be worrying people. So I've no doubt that uh, the whips will be having a lot of discussions with disgruntled colleagues over the next few days. I would very much hope that some of these uh, measures uh, might be reviewed by the Chancellor. Reviewed and dropped in coming weeks. That's what I'd like to see. 
And if they are, I mean, can you imagine that um, uh, dozens of your colleagues voting against these measures if it, if it was put to vote in the Commons? Well, that remains to be seen. It's an extremely big deal to vote against financial measures. And what is usually done uh, is that the Chancellor is persuaded that some of these measures are not sensible. I, I remember in particular the, the pasty tax and the caravan tax. <laughs> I mean, the, the, those uh, were, were, were the classic measures. There's nothing quite so egregious here uh, as those. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, there are some extremely troubling measures that uh, I certainly will be wanting to have discussions about. And you'll vote against? Uh, I haven't said that. But what I have said is I will be having those discussions and I hope that I won't have to even consider voting against. If you take a step back here, do you worry now there's no real difference in some key parts of tax and spend between your party and the opposition, Labour? I, it, yeah, I think, frankly, what exemplified that was the fact that although Rachel Reeves stood up and uh, gave a very critical speech, as you might expect, uh, she actually came up with no alternative proposals. Uh, so it seems to me that the measures that were announced today by the Chancellor, in many respects, could equally have been announced by Rachel Reeves if, she, if she'd been standing in his position. And I think one of the things that we as a party have got to be careful of is the voters looking at the Conservatives and looking at the Labour Party and saying, well, frankly, what's the difference? Because that's not the way that you win elections. Uh, you think back, don't you, to the 1950s and so-called butskalism, which is before I was alive, but that was when the Tory Chancellor R.A. Butler, Rab Butler, and Labour's Hugh Gateskill basically agreed on tax policy, and there's no difference. And, and the problem then is you have, well, why vote Conservative if you don't want to cut taxes? That's, that's the point of the party. That, 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 that's exactly the problem. And I have to say, when I hear a Chancellor uh, referring to investment income as unearned income, which is a straightforward Labour Party expression. It worries me considerably. But David, there was some some spending there, wasn't there? I mean, there's the capital spending is going to keep going um, before slowing down after two or three years. There was money for pensioners, money for those on universal credit, a ten percent increase from April. You know, he's he's trying there, isn't he? Isn't he to spread the money, distri- distribute it around the economy as best he can to help those who need it most? Well, well, well look, let, let, let's be absolutely fair. You know, if we had not uh, confirmed the triple lock and our adherence to the triple lock, it would have been absolutely catastrophic. But, Politically, And I don't think any of us ever believed that he was going to chop the, the triple lock. So, yes, there is that. In terms of, of additional capital s- expenditure, that's right. But you have to remember that inflation is now running at, at uh, around 11%. So uh, any increase is going to be degraded of necessity by inflation. So uh, where you do see announcements of additional capital expenditure, you have always to ask yourself, well, what will be that expenditure worth when you take into account the impact of inflation? There's one other measure that I really feel that I ought to mention too, and that's the um, issue of freezing the threshold for payment of inheritance tax. That's a tax that affects every family in this country sooner or later. And that threshold has been £325,000 since 2009. That's worth over £500,000 now. So you can see the extent to which that benefit has been degraded already. And now he's announced that that threshold is going to be uh, frozen again. And and these are measures that are uh, affecting people who've worked hard all their lives, who've built up savings, who haven't relied upon the state and have put something away that they want to leave to the next generation. And that is now under attack again. And frankly, one of the things that a Conservative Chancellor should be doing 
doing is to be encouraging saving and one of the ways to do that is to increase the, the, the threshold before which you have to start paying tax on inherited wealth. If you take a step back, David Jones, isn't this the natural response to spending hundreds of billions of pounds on the COVID pandemic and then the energy shock from the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Didn't the government have to do something? Yes, I, 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 I think that I think that's fair. But at the same time, you have to take into account that what we do need is growth. Mm. In fact, the Chancellor said today that we need growth. He recognised that what Kwasi Kwarteng was trying to do uh, was right in terms of encouraging growth. But what worries me is that I don't see much in these measures that is going to generate the sort of growth that we need. And you're quite right about the expenditure. I think uh, that the COVID pandemic is something that we're going to have to pay off, off over a long period of time. And day David Davis, my colleague, has already suggested that we should issue COVID bonds so that we could pay it off over, say, 50 years or so. The intervention, I think, uh, in terms of support of energy uh, prices was untargeted. The Chancellor is continuing that, that but he's, he's, he's reducing the level of support. But again, that's something that we do have to pay for, and we're going to be paying for it by higher taxes. Just finally, David Jones, marks out of 10? Below five. David Jones on his way back to North Wales. Thank you for joining us quickly here on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you on. Thank you. Good to be here. David Jones there. And finally, Jim O'Neill, Baron O'Neill of Gately, is one of Britain's most senior and famed economists. He's also advising Labour on its new policy towards startups, but of course he's a crossbencher. So his view is well regarded and respected across the political spectrum. He was, of course, a Treasury Minister for David Cameron's coalition government. Jim O'Neill, Lord O'Neill, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. It's great to have you on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're talking in the wake of Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement. First question to you, has it reassured the city about the investability of this country? Seems to have done. If you look at the markets, what is it, five hours later, they seem pretty calm away from the fact that it's uh, a slightly trickier day for global markets. But, you know, by this stage months ago, which was a tricky day for global markets, the UK was really picked on and we've not seen that. So something around the scene appears to be a bit more relaxed. I have to say, it seems to me like uh, there are are adults back at the table. That's been used before, the idea the adults are back in charge. Mm. Is there a too big a price to pay, though, for this medicine which has been given to Britain today? Well... (sighs) I'm waiting to really wade through the Red Book and and any other details because I thought it was uh, pretty clever, actually, because having set us all up for this 55 billion worth of pain, actually, there seems to be a lot of jam being thrown around. And particularly because I look at a lot of the regional issues and challenges about so-called levelling up, there was some pretty good things thrown in there, in my view, and it was quite clever. And when I, my strong suspicion is the details will show even more from what you can take away superficially, is that a lot of the pain is actually postponed beyond the time of this current government. And as the opposition have pointed out quite astutely, the way the, way the system works with the OBR right back in the prominent position of it, we're going to have at least two more, if not three more OBR forecasts before the next election. So... If they become more optimistic about the growth cycle, 
then they wouldn't have to go through with all the pain, for example. So mm. it was quite, it was pretty clever, and it, it threw a few political challenges to the opposition for the first time in 2022. That's for sure. And he's he's frozen um, thresholds to give lots of fiscal drag to draw people into paying more tax, hasn't he? He has a kind of brownite trick. You could into to twenty twenty eight, quite far into the next parliament. Is that why? Is it, does it not tie the hands of of a conservative prime minister fighting the next election in late twenty four? Well, as I say, it kind of depends on what is going on with the economy as soon as possibly as the March budget. Amongst all the sensitive issues of the past two to three months, one of them that I have a little bit of sympathy about the scale of the role of the OBR, and as somebody that's been a Treasury Minister, the one thing you always knew for sure when I'd happened in the Lord's dispatch area to, to present the budget, is that the biggest change from the previous one was the OBR's forecast of GDP. And so... The one thing we know for sure that come next March and the and the budget, the OBR's forecast will be different than it is today. What we don't know, whether it will be more or less optimistic or pessimistic, but that is the the way the system works. So it might well be that none of those tough things that are promised all for the end of this period of five years will actually ever need to happen. So it's quite clever. Jim, I know you're a crossbench peer. You're doing a review of startups for Labour mm-hmm. Party, but you're a crossbench peer. I am. We've had on this podcast already David Jones, MP, who's a kind of right-wing veteran. I know David, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's cross about it. He thinks that it's not a very conservative response to the crisis in the British economy at the moment. He, he wonders why the language of unearned income is used to describe dividends, for example, and he sees this squeezing of middle England higher earners as not being the right response. And it, it's forgetting about growth what would you say to that well i'm not surprised somebody like david would say that and it's yet another sign of the sort of complexity of of the the era we're going through and this remarkable ability of the tory government to sort of jump from one side to the other and it it certainly demonstrates the tory party's flexibility and I, i joked within half an hour of him finishing speaking this is actually a budget that you wouldn't be that surprised if Rachel Reeves gave it. Yeah. And I thought she did a pretty good job in response, to be honest. And I, I feared for in a way because I thought it would be tough because there would be a lot of things he announced she would have agreed with. But obviously in the game of tribal politics, she wouldn't have said so. But I'm not surprised the right wing of the party says that because it's, it's against the core philosophy that they believe in. But David and others somewhere along the line, have to sort of recognise that the country seems to have this clamour for so many public resources. And you can't get away with it unless you have higher taxes. Otherwise, you're going to lose credibility in financial markets, as we've witnessed Hmm. two months ago. It might be a bit of a weird thing for people like David who have such strong philosophies, and in many ways understandable ones, but you, you, know, you have to marry the two together at some point. Do you think that the, the response today from Jeremy Hunt is the natural one in the wake of the, the, the billions, the hundreds of billions spent on the COVID-19 response, along with the energy shock caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Is it just that's where we are? We have to do something and to pay for all that? You know... It sounds crass and sort of an obvious thing to say, but we don't live in a world of free lunches. Mm. And uh, part of the hangover from COVID is, and it bothers me longer term, that we as a population now sort of expect the governments of the day to bail us out of every dilemma that comes along. And obviously that is not 
rational. And at some point, there's going to be some kind of crisis where the government can't bail everybody out. But they've done it with COVID, they've done it with the energy crisis, hmm. um, but it's not a free lunch. And so we all have to pay somehow to keep the fiscal accounts yeah. in some kind of underlying order. I would add that, you know, in my own view, and it's become a bit of an obsession of mine as an economist, my own experiences, both the life of the chief economist of Goldman through the crisis and things I've done in policy, I would like to see more ambition for government investment spending, which would itself temporarily create even more debts. But I, I can't understand in this day and era of pretty sophisticated ways of being very accountable and credible that where you can demonstrate there is going to be strong revenues in the future from bigger government investment spending today, why our government doesn't take that risk? Because we do have to get out of this low productivity, low investment trap. And at some point, somebody's got to do that. On, on that point, of course, he did talk about continuing HS2 back to your home city mm. of Manchester, didn't he? He did. Northern powerhouse rail, new hospitals to go ahead. So there was, in a sense, that that, that mistake that was made under, in austerity years in the Lib Dem coalition with the Tory party when they cut capital spending, that's not happening, is it? No, I was really pleasantly surprised by that too. And I'll go one step further. I'm, I'm desperately eager to hear or see the details about the big tweak he's made to the investment zones proposal mm. because that sounds like what they're really going to do is try and put more support behind universities in parts of the country that, that are really struggling that need it and i'm heavily involved yep. i'm chair of something called northern gritstone which has been set up as a private sector money to do just that and if we had serious government support support more of those that would be fantastic and really good for the supply side were you surprised, Jim O'Neill, about this, I thought, quite surprising statistic in uh, Jeremy Hunt's speech that there's a sharp increase in economically inactive working-age adults of 630,000 since the start of the pandemic? And you mentioned productivity. Is that not part of it? I mean, why, why aren't people who can work working? I mean, I'm not surprised you mentioned it because that's been a, an increasingly scary uh, observation that labour market specialists and data analysts have been pointing out as 2022 has progressed and it is highly bothersome. You know, economic growth is over the long term about the size and growth of the labour force and its productivity. And we appear to have lost over 500,000 people from our labour force than before COVID. And, and, and really worryingly, your natural inclination is to just think it's people that are approaching retirement age that retire earlier, but it's not. It's also a lot of mm. people in, the, in theoretically the prime of their working age. And it seems like there's a lot of quite serious mental health issues and people that aren't getting access to the care and support to make them better. And that means that our labor force is being constrained at a time of when we've got really weak productivity. So trying to focus on that with him raising it was actually also something that was good to see because you can't, unlike his predecessor, this idea that you can just magically create 2.5% growth out of nothing, if you're going to create 2.5% growth, which is a fantastic goal, you've got to deal with the labor force and productivity. And so it was also quite pleasing to see what the Chancellor had to say about all of that, in my view. Taking a step back, and again, as a crossbencher, do you now see very little difference between the Tories and Labour Party in some key parts of tax and spend policy? 
I mean, as I sort of joked to you about earlier, if you could have superimposed Jeremy Hunt's voice with that of Rachel Reeves, I wouldn't have been overly surprised because it was a budget that was aimed at maintaining the newfound fiscal credibility, but one that tried to deal with some of the issues about boosting longer-term growth or certainly setting the scene for it, but at the same time making sure that those that earn more are paying more than those that earn very little. And, you know, obviously that's something, you, as David Jones has pointed out to you by the sounds of it, it, would normally you would expect from a Labour Party rather than a Tory party. But I think it's quite clever because if you look at the opinion polls and, and not just about which party people support, but deeper ones about whether people are prepared to pay more in tax, for the first time in over 30 years, the last two years, there are some signs that people in the country at large are prepared to pay more tax. So it used to be the case that anybody hinting at more tax would mean you'd be immediately voted out of office. It doesn't look as though that's necessarily the case at this stage in our so, uh, era. Are you seeing some method in this in the sense that that perhaps that the, the Tory right is wrong to have a go at this? Maybe, maybe Hunt and Sunak are onto something, that there's a, a move towards willingly paying more for public services? Um, I think they're onto the political antenna. If the Tories want to have any chance of winning the next election, the kind of thing that was announced today has to be the representation of the Tory government. I understand why those to the right of the, uh, the Tory party will not like it. And they have very strong ideology about low taxes leads to strong growth. But to be honest, I, it's not the right tone for the current time of the UK's evolution, as you can see by the kind of surveys I've mentioned. And to be honest, it's not clear to me, despite what the textbooks say, from having lived as a professional person in finance and economics for 40 years, it's not clear there's any evidence that things like lower corporation taxes have actually done anything to boost investment spending. So I think a lot of people on the right of the center are stuck with 1960s and 70s type textbook ideas, which is a bit out of tune with the mood of the public and with actual the reality of evidence of what's been happening around the world. Well, Lord O'Neill of, of Gately, Jim O'Neill, thank you for joining us. It's great to have you on. You're a legend for me in many ways in this, in this world of economics and, and working out how to spend money correctly for the government. And it's great to have you on this week's edition of Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. And that's all for this week, listeners. We'll be back next week with a special episode featuring Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer with an audience of savvy sixth formers from a local comprehensive. I can't wait. Thank you again to my guests this week, the Telegraph's very own Camilla Tomney and Gordon Rayner, David Jones MP and Lord O'Neill of Gatley, Jim O'Neill to you and me. Thank you to my producers, Louis Wells, and of course, Giles Gear. And for more Westminster Insights, do check out my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter. The link for that is in the show notes to this episode. And why not take a peek at my weekly Peterborough diary column? It comes out on Friday evening at 7pm online and in Saturday's newspaper. And perhaps more importantly than my musings, and this is definitely right, are yours, listeners. Please do share them email me chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk or tweet me we're at chopperspodcast what you think about what our guests say really matters to all of us 
And remember, please do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph if you can. You won't regret it. Until next time, though, cheerio!